going to read the text actually this morning, so uh, all at once. So if you have your Bibles, you'll find it in Mark chapter 8, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, if we're using the Pew Bible. It's on page 33 of the New Testament side towards the right of your Bible. And I'd like to just read it out loud for you. And um, you can go ahead and stay seated, but kind of follow along with me as we watch Jesus deal with his disciples after the feeding of the 4,000. In those days when there was again a large crowd, they had nothing to eat. Jesus called the disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy the people? He was asking them, How many loaves do you have? Jesus said, Of course. And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. They served them to the people. They also had a few small fish after he had blessed them. He ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied and picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And he sent them away and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the, to the district of Dalmanutha. Verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. Leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you don't have any bread? Do you not yet or see or understand do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve? When he broke the seven and the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for your direction and blessing as we look at this convicting text uh, for us this morning. Pray for your grace and blessing to understand it in the deeper sense that the disciples did not. 
we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been following Christ's final days. His final days were in Galilee. Things had kind of come to an end there after a couple of years. And, and he was getting a lot of opposition from the Pharisees. And a lot of the people who came to the miracles wanted more miracles, but they didn't understand the depth of it. And so in, in large, he was somewhat rejected by many of the people. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, really the Gospel of Mark was really written for a Roman kind of audience. Uh, Roman Gentiles mostly probably and various others. And we know that because of the use of the Greek language in his Gospel and secondly the explanation of Jewish customs had to be pretty much for a group of Greek people who did not know all those things. And it's interesting also that when Mark quotes scripture in the Old Testament, he often quotes it from the, um, from, the, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew because it was probably Greek people who were reading his book. So we have a little insight into why the Gospel of Mark was written really to Roman Gentiles there. So um, Christ's ministry, if you remember, we talked last time, was really to... Um, was really to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And of course, that's the order of the progression. When you look at the Great Commission, it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so that's how we see it in his ministry. Also, he went to the Jew first and, you know, he was here in Galilee and he was reaching Jews and lots of Jews were there. Not that there weren't some Gentiles, but eventually he changed because the Pharisees were after him and they were just ganging up on him more and more. And if you remember, he had to leave. And I got a little map I popped up there last week and pop it up again. Kind of shows the route that he took. He went on a Gentile kind of uh, excursion, a trip with his disciples. He started out in Galilee on the left circle there and then went up towards Tyre and then to side. Poseidon, and then eventually down to Galilee again to the place called Decapolis, means ten cities in the Greek language. But it was all Gentile people pretty much. And so he ran across a woman when he was in Tyre, and she was a Gentile, and the disciples kind of didn't want her around, but Jesus said, it's okay, and she wanted her daughter healed, and Jesus healed her, if you remember that story. So he's dealing with Gentiles, and he makes this big, long trip. We don't know how long it took. It may have taken months or for sure weeks, about 150 miles, it's a good walk, you know, there. But the Gentiles were considered to be dogs, if you recall from last week. So we come now, immediately after he gets back, he heals another person, and that happens to be the, the man was deaf and dumb, he could not hear, could not speak, and people were so excited about that in Decapolis, there in Decapolis, on the lower right. And that's the place where he had also healed the demoniac uh, from Gadara and who was crazy and, and living in the tombs and he was told by Jesus to go back and talk to his people and tell them all about what happened. Evidently he did because when Jesus came back the second time what we find out is the people flocked to Jesus from that same area and they're Gentiles for the most part. And they are so excited and they think they've said after he healed the man that was um, deaf and dumb he said he has done all things well. And then that leads to our text where we are this morning, starting in 
In verse 1 of Mark chapter 8, verse 1, we see here the feeding of the 5,000. Now you remember there was a feeding of the 5,000, I mean, and this is a feeding of the 4,000. 5,000 was earlier, we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, but this is a different feeding here. And this shows Christ's compassion again. It says in verse 1, it says, in those days, that would have been the days after he completed that little circular trip with his disciples. It was a getaway time to rest as well and to train his disciples. It's all about training his disciples. And let me tell you, when you look at this text this morning, you see the 5,000 and the 4,000 and all of that. This is really about training the disciples. That's really what the theme of this is. Because they were kind of confused. There wasn't, wasn't much going on upstairs, you could say. So in those days, when there was, again, a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, so he's really over on that east side of the Sea of Galilee, near Decapolis, somewhere in that area there, and the crowds were coming to him, they, they had really got on with it. They knew he did all things well, and they came, and it was the place he went to kind of get away from things, but they kept coming after him anyway, and they wanted to know more. And they were out there. And Jesus called his disciples, and he started to speak to them. Anyway, um, Decapolis is this place that's kind of interesting, ten cities. So there was a lot of cities in that area, small cities, and that demoniac that had gotten straightened out, demon cast out, he was in that area. He probably did quite a bit of an evangelistic work, the first Gentile evangelistic outreach there. And he had quite a testimony. But it tells us here also that in another place that he was there for three days. Now come down to verse 2. Go to verse 2. I feel compassion, Jesus said, for the people. And that was the theme of his trips there when he was with um, the disciples early on with the woman that had the, had the daughter, had a demon in, in her. He says, I feel compassion for the people. Um, by the way, compassion is an interesting word. Splagizomai. It sort of is a word that deals with and can be translated as bowels of compassion right down deep inside. It, it, you know, when you're really compassionate about something, it even affects your insides, doesn't it? We know that. He said, I've got compassion for these people because they've remained with me now for three days. That's a long time. That's a long, long time. And they have nothing to eat. And that's probably true. They didn't have much to eat. That area down there, if you've been near there, it's kind of like, you know, when you take I-90 east to Spokane, you have to go across the Columbia River. And when you go across the Columbia River, there's that place called Vantage. Remember the bridge? I don't know if you remember because I was raised over there. But Vantage doesn't have much to offer except rocks and rattlesnakes. Big cliffs on both sides. My grandfather used to hike all over that place and pick up arrowheads and things. So there wasn't much to eat there. It was kind of like vantage, I think, there. Nothing to eat. In verse 3 says, I'll send them away hungry to their homes. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will, find, they will faint on the way. But some of them got a great distance to go, Jesus was saying. 
It's a long ways from there to home, wherever it is. And he had compassion for them and felt for them. And he had been teaching all that time. That's pretty much how it was. He was teaching a lot of miracles we never, we never will know about because the Gospel of John tells us he did so many miracles that there's a book not big enough to put them all in, essentially, is kind of what he was saying. We're just getting the top tier of those miracles when we read the New Testament and Scripture and so on. Well, verse 4, verse 4 now goes on, and his disciples answered. Now, this is what they're going to say. Where will anyone be able to find anything here? We're not going to find any bread here in this desolate place. It's like vantage. It's desolate to satisfy these people. So, this feeding was much like it was with the 5,000. They were low on food and there were all those people, but now the same thing going on here and the disciples didn't have enough food for them either in the earlier situation in the 5,000. So now in the 4,000, they're kind of back to the same, same situation here. And um, it's, like going to, um, it's like going for a walk on the trail's advantage and finding some food. You're not going to find anything there that grows like at all, period. They doubted the lessons that they learned in the feeding of the 5,000. And you know, I have to say, do we ever doubt God's ability even though we've learned it and experienced it and studied it? And then we come into a situation and... They get skeptical about something, building project, you know, your job, serving God, being asked to do something, ministry, providing for family. I don't know about you, but I am fears like anybody else. I wake up at three in the morning and it's dark outside and I start thinking about things. Well, how am I ever going to do that? But you know, when the sun comes up in the morning, it's always a little better, isn't it? So take sleepy time, sleep tea, and sleep all through the night. That's what I do. Works. But you have to trust God. So while all four Gospels, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, and it's the only miracle that's really like that, all four of them talk about it, and it's the largest miracle Jesus did as he ended his ministry in Galilee, so it made a big impact on the people. Only Matthew and Mark record this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. So it's a little different in this situation. You don't have a lot of detail about this one like you did about the earlier one in chapter 6. If you want to compare notes, you can go to chapter 6 and, and read about it. The feeding of the 5,000. And then, of course, here you're going to see the 4,000. So now Jesus is going to do another miracle, kind of like the one before. And that starts in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. And um, we're going to kind of browse through it there. He started asking them questions, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And the loaves were varying sizes, probably a little bit bigger than we would have, I think. And uh, a little hard to know, but seven loaves is not enough when you've got 12 disciples and um, 4,000 people. And in reality, he probably had, actually Matthew tells us that he also had women and uh, children. So you can add about 10, 15,000 to that scholars say, because they, they would come along, and it says that they were there, and Matthew doesn't mention it in Mark, because Mark's, uh, he does everything immediately, real fast, and kind of short, you know. So, uh, 
They said, seven. Then he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And they took the loaves, and he thanked the Lord. He gave thanks. He gave thanks. Sometimes it says, he blessed it. I heard that question sometimes. Are we ever to bless the food? Well, the blessing from God came from Christ for sure. So he gave thanks, and he broke them. The word broke is in the aorist tense, which means point action. That's a one-time thing. He broke the loaves. He broke them in two so he could get the bread out of them and separate them somehow. It's in the aorist tense. But it says, and he started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. And the word for giving is in the imperfect tense, which means past action that continues on and on and on and on. So I think probably what went on, the disciples were given the pieces of bread and uh, they were handed out to the people and they handed out to this guy over here and to that guy over there, but the bread still was in their hands and they keep handing it out and it's still there. It just kind of multiplies in their hand. Bread that had never been baked, the bread that was from grain that had never grown and so forth, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And you think about that just a little bit, it's pretty amazing here what was going on. And it just kept multiplying and multiplying before their eyes. God can do that. Now that's a miracle, but God can cause things to happen you just don't understand sometimes. I, I know that's true. And at the right time in the right place. And sometimes it doesn't seem like a miracle. and Other times it, it seems that this is providential how this happened. So and so sh showed up at the right time, time to help out on something. So what they gathered at the end was way more than they originally had. So you read a little farther, they're handing it out, and verse 7 goes on to say, they also had a few small fish. It's kind of like sardines, a little bit different than the fish in the other situation, which actually says they had two fish. These were really small little fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered that these were served as well, and they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets. Now, now note that. Seven large baskets full. When they picked up the baskets from the feeding of the 5,000, they were like lunch pail sized baskets here. There. In chapter 6. But here, these baskets are, it's a different Greek word again, and it's interesting it uses a different word because these baskets are the size of probably this pulpit. They're like a big clothes hamper. In fact, you could put a man in some of these. And so these baskets were full also, seven of them. That's more than, you probably couldn't, you wouldn't have any problem putting seven loaves in one of those baskets and still only being about 10% full. It was a miracle. These were what was left over of the broken pieces. And then it says, and 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And as I said, Matthew 15 adds the fact that there were women and children also. So, uh, pretty interesting situation here. I think that there were a lot of people here, obviously, I don't doubt that. That's the way they counted people, is usually by the heads of the houses, showing a group of people, and that just gets a one. But you add the women and children, it adds up real fast. Do you ever have fear about God providing? I, I ask that question again. I think that's the lesson that comes to us right there. We fear. We know God will provide. He said he would take care of us. said he would be with us wherever we go. 
But sometimes we worry about how he's going to provide. I, I've told the story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's worth repeating. When I left the military after seven years of active duty, I was intending to be career, but then God's hand was on me, and I, I saw that, and so I, I prayed about it, talked to people anyway, left the service, and I was being a pretty good wage at the end of those seven years. By then, I was a junior officer, and uh, I saved every other paycheck. I didn't spend it on stuff I didn't need. We had conservative budget. Every other paycheck went in the bank for a year or two. We saved up enough money to, to last for a little while. God was blessing us that way. But we had no long-range plans for what the future would hold, except that we were going to go back to Bible college to finish up about two years with the college and then go into the mission field of some sort. I had the GI Bill, and the GI Bill was wonderful. It covered all of those two years of college, and then I got to the end of the two years of college, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm not really very sharp on this theology Bible stuff yet. I think I need more than two years, and um, we prayed about it, and well, let's think about seminary. How am I going to pray for seminary? Just about then, I got a, got a notice that the... That the uh, Veterans Administration had given and extended the GI Bill so that now it would be not just four years, which I'd only use two of, it'd be five years. And seminary is three years, and if you do the math, it all comes out. I thought, wow, this is meant to be, isn't it? It's meant to be. Our fears were assuaged, and God provided and we didn't plan to start a church, plan to go to Alaska, but God opened the door because we were living here. We could see this was an area that was uh, growing. It only had one blinking light, and that's the only lights that are around anywhere here. As you know, it's exploded in these days. And I started the church out of my own pocket, and God has provided along that line too. And that's a whole nother story. So we need not fear about God's provision. Certainly the disciples did. They didn't seem to get the picture of what had happened with the um, 5,000. That this could happen with them now with the 4,000. They missed the boat. Now what about this 4,000? By the way, some thinks that this is kind of interesting thing if you have this question come up. Some people think that the feeding of the 4,000 is just a scribal error. They copied this story twice, same miracle twice, except for they got the numbers wrong at the beginning, five versus four. But when you look at this very carefully and you compare all the details, I just say to encourage you along, that that's not really true. When you look at it very careful, carefully, um, in, in the first, um, in this second case here, this is the second case here, we have a Gentile audience at Decapolis, but it was primarily a Jewish audience with the 5,000. And the miracle here is only in Matthew and Mark, while the other one was all four Gospels there. And um, we have 4,000 versus 5,000, so that's obviously not the same. And in this case, there were three days that they were there, but the other one was only one day, which explicitly says that. And there were seven loaves versus five loaves, and a few small fish versus two fish. Different word for fish, too, by the way. Large baskets were used here, 
man-sized hampers, different kind of Greek word for that, versus this small idea of a little basket, kind of like a lunch pail size. Different words for fish and so on. So it was quite a different thing. So if people say this is an, is an obvious thing that says that the Bible is full of errors, well, ask them if they know the two stories and have compared notes, and uh, obviously they're not. Different areas, all kinds of things that were different, but for a purpose somewhat similar too, but some differences there. Now, um, it says that they were fed and they sent them away. And then we find out, they go to this place called Decapolis. I'll put up the other map, you'll see what happens next there. They went from Bethsaida, which means house of fish, by the way. They went from Bethsaida down across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, a few miles, uh, three or four miles, five miles maybe, to a place called Magadan, or it's also called Dalmanutha. So you can use those terms interchangeably and kind of shows you where they went. They went back to the side that was really more um, Jewish in nature to some degree. And so we find ourselves now in verse 10. Verse 10. The signs of the times in Dalmanutha, I called it. Verse 10 says, immediately. <laughs> Mark's favorite word, isn't he? He always uses that word. Immediately, he entered the boat. He's up there by Bethsaida with his disciples. That'd probably be the 12, and there probably could have been other people following by then, maybe even other boats, and we don't know for sure, but it's a possibility, a likelihood, and came to the district of Dalmanutha, which literally means a bucket or a branch, which doesn't really help us much here. And um, sometimes called Magdala on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. A little nicer area here, here. Verse 11 says the Pharisees showed up. Here they are again. It seemed like the Pharisees were showing up left and right everywhere he was going and more and more, <coughs> more, and more often. So the result, was that, uh, this result was that he would have to face off with them. Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeing from him a sign from heaven, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. That was always what they were wanting. They were looking for a way to nail him. Remember, it started out with just a few Pharisees in Galilee earlier in the book. And then pretty soon, last time or two, we saw that the, there was a whole group of people that came up, Pharisees and some uh, scribes who were much more astute, upper level, kind of like the liberals and the Pharisees were the conservatives. They all came up from Jerusalem because they'd heard about Jesus and they wanted to find out what's going on and mainly they didn't like what was going on because if you remember right, they saw his disciples washing his hands and the word Pharisee means separated ones. They were the ones that added all the laws to the Old Testament and they saw them washing the hands and they didn't like the way they do it because it wasn't according to the law. That would be their law. Not God's law, not in the Old Testament. The degree that they washed their hands was crazy. So they began to argue with Jesus. So you can kind of see what likely was going on in this argument. They were looking for a way to nail him, so to speak. He's back in the more 
Jewish area. There were probably Gentiles were there too. They tried to trap him. You know, when people are upset with Christians, they will try to trap you and they won't stop. They won't give up. They have seen and heard of miracles and they still want more signs. That's what they were looking for. They wanted a sign from heaven to test him there. They had what you might call, and I read this, called obstinate unbelief. Never run into that. They're going to not believe no matter what. And that's pretty much where they were. They were ever so unreasonable. It was worse than a presidential debate. If you get what I'm saying. It's in darkness and they never give up. They never find the way out. Obstinate unbelief. Maybe you were that way at once in your life. I don't know. Sometimes some of us have been. And God got a hold of us. But you know, if you're obstinate in unbelief long enough, pretty soon you are sealed. You end up sealing yourself in that spot. And among the Pharisees, I think a lot of them were sealed in that spot and couldn't see the light thereafter, except for maybe one that we read about in John 3, Pharisee that came to Jesus by night, wanted to know, what must you do to be born again? And Jesus said to him, gave us the most simple answer for salvation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, so forth, that idea. God so loved the world, you know. It's so simple there. That was to a Pharisee. Verse 12. Verse 12. Jesus speaking here. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. It seems like his humanity comes out just a little bit here. He sighed in his spirit, kind of a deep emotional kind of sighing goes on here. And we do see that he was both God and man, the hypostatic union. He was both God and man. In the sense that he was God, he knew all things, he had power to do miracles, but in his humanity he had the sense of feeling upset, Sad, deep emotion, love, all those kinds of things. That's a wonderful thing to see in our Lord that he would sigh and feel that way and he would sigh and feel that way when we are obstinate also. In spite of all the miraculous signs, the feeding of the four and the five thousand and all the other Miracles, especially the 5,000. That's the largest miracle he did. And everybody saw it. It was a great picture of common grace that God gave to the people. Not everybody came to believe in that group either, but nevertheless, it had a big impact. So, why, don't they, why are they seeking for a sign, he says here. And he's really, he's really deeply feeling the emotion in his gut. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. 
Now, just stop for a minute and think about this. In, in, um, in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, I'll just quote it for you. We have a parallel account of this particular situation. Most believe this is something more that Jesus added to what Mark wrote down and gives us a little fuller picture. So it says in Mark, excuse me, Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up. Sadducees were um, the ones who did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. They came up and they were testing him, it says, and they wanted him to show a, a sign or a miracle from heaven. And then in verse 2, it says, he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be storm today, for the sky is threatening. This is kind of a nautical expression here, I believe, because they were probably going back on the boat, we see there in back in verse 13, to go um, to a different spot, get away from them. It's the old expression that we had in the Coast Guard when I was out at sea on a ship that would be there for 10 months. Uh, they says, well, they were, I was just kind of new there, and they said, well, remember the old statement that says, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailor take morning. Warning. Well, let me tell you, I started watching the sky because I didn't like it when we had storms out there. And that's exactly what they were saying, that's what Jack, exactly what was uh, the idea when Jesus said that. You should know how to determine the signs of the time. You know how to do that. You say red sky in the morning or the evening, whatever, and it always kind of comes out that way. Why can't you figure out what I am saying is what Jesus was saying there. Signs of the times. An evil, verse 4 says, adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They were seeking for a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what did he mean by that? Jonah lived, of course, centuries and centuries before. He was the one that went to Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, and he was the one who went there and preached around that place, but he had first rejected what God wanted him to do, went out on the boat, and he was thrown overboard because he caused the storm, because he was disobedient to God. He was swallowed by a great fish, it says, and he was in the fish three days, and then he came out of the fish, he was burped out of the fish on the shore, and then he was willing to go <laughs> after that. <laughs> so, the sign of the prophet Jonah was talking about what? The resurrection. When the resurrection comes, that will be the grand miracle of all miracles. And Matthew's Gospel 16 verse 4 says he left them and went away, like our text up in verse 13 says as well. So Jonah was there. By the way, it's kind of an irony too when you go back and look. I was reading a little farther in Matthew chapter 12 verse 39 through 42. You ought to read this. This is very convicting stuff here. Jesus had spoken to them at a different time about this very thing. And this is what he had said earlier, and I'm assuming that some of these Pharisees knew this and remembered it. This is what he said, Matthew, Matthew 12, 39. He says, uh, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah the prophet, we just said that, and that's what we see in the earlier one here. That's what took place here at the 4,000. 
verse 40 says, For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, he was belched up and he landed on the shore. And I don't know how that all worked out, but I believe it happened. I believe it's a miracle. I know you can get inside of a whale's mouth because I actually got in one once. Verse 41 says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying this to the Pharisees. That's pretty, that's pretty hard stuff, isn't it? They repented. It's like in the future... In heaven, those people have got saved. They're going to stand up and it's going to be a great conviction at Judgment Day on those who rejected it. Greater is someone than Jonah. And that would be who? Christ. Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he was there doing all these signs. But wait, verse 42 goes on. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment also, was kind of the idea, and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. And who would that be? Jesus. Jesus. Christ. And what about you? Christ is more than a carpenter, isn't he? He's more than a great teacher. He's more than someone who is known around the world. In fact, the best known person in entire history is Jesus Christ, even though he didn't really travel more than 100 miles, never wrote any books, but his words are recorded in Scripture. So, he really got after these guys, and he went back. He probably went to Bethsaida. Different Bethsaida. There are two Bethsaidas in the New Testament. And we don't know for sure where one of them is because the remains are gone. It's really close to where Peter lived in Caesarea. And they believe it may be there. And maybe archaeology will show that up eventually. So he went somewhere with his disciples. And he probably went there. And um, as he left... Jesus refused to answer their question about showing a sign except to give those statements earlier and at the same time in Matthew's Gospel, a parallel account. So now we come to, uh, to verse 14. 14 and 15, warning of a deadly infection. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It says, uh, and they had forgotten to take bread. Kind of comes back to that. They being the disciples... We're in a boat, forgotten to take bread. Probably when they left where they were before, Beth's um, um, up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, probably didn't take a lot of bread. But anyway, they'd forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf. Now, not seven in the boat, it was one loaf. And with them, they didn't have any more than that. It says in verse 15, that he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So, while he's warning them about this deadly leaven that could kill the country, spiritually speaking, they're worried about lunch. 
Where's the bread? What are we going to do? We're hungry. I sort of missed the point there. The whole nation was really infected with what the Pharisees did with all these laws. And we talked about that before. But remember, there were so many laws just about washing your hands that even the CDC wouldn't require that for this thing we got going on here. It was incredible. And there are entire books written on this. It was just one thing after another, but it was only the tradition of the elders and it wasn't from God. It was a man-made thing. Verse 15 says he was giving orders to them. Jesus was saying, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. What is leaven? Well, of course, you probably know leaven is something you put to make bread and it helps it Rise, I guess. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to make bread. I just eat it, and um, or buy it. Isn't that where you get all bread in the store? Um, oh no, Nancy made some sometimes too. It's delicious. She's not in here, so she didn't hear me say anything bad about her bread. Sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's the reality of things. But Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Believe in Him. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that or talk to us afterwards. Or, if you have believed, but you're kind of struggling a little bit like these guys did, you know. And, and I have to say, I've struggled like that too. When I came, like I said, when I came out of the service to go back to college, I kind of wondered how things are going to work out, but I had so much homework, I didn't have time to worry about it after a while. <laughs> but, um, but God worked it out. And how we all got here, and in looking back after 40 years, I, I wonder, how did this all happen? It's almost like a miracle. Isn't it, Graham? That's because it is, in a very real sense. So, um, we as human beings have a tendency to fall back sometimes. The disciples did. And they had probably the most powerful examples of just the opposite, and they just missed it and only started talking about the lunch. What's for lunch? What's for lunch? Well, may we grow in that as we face this thing called the virus we've got in the area. But remember, there is an empty tomb. Christ died for us. And uh, we must put our trust in him and seek him in all areas. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. And uh, thank you for... The words of Mark. He's very near to my heart in many ways now. Continuing to be, and may, may we learn from his newspaper version of the gospel something that we may have missed along the way. And may we not be like the twelve. May we be like those who followed. May we be like those who grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen.